What then is a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, you might recall back in verse 2, we're told there that Jesus is addressing the crowds in the temple in Jerusalem. It's the end of a week-long feast that's drawing to a close. The religious leaders of their day have been squaring up to Christ, trying to trip him up, trying to discredit him, uh, trying to get him to say something that they can use against him, something that they can use to turn the people against him. Because they see in Jesus a great threat who would upset their cosy political and religious club and the influence and the status that they're enjoying with it. That's, well, at least how they see it. Whilst there are many against him, we are told that there are those who nevertheless believed in him. But what does that mean? What must that mean? What ought that mean? If you say, I believe in Jesus, what must that embrace and include? Because Jesus is going to explain that believing in him has to be much more than simply nodding in agreement to the things that he's saying. And maybe there were quite a few who were in that category. But he's going to explain that there needs to be something much deeper than that going on. Most of us are very good at starting things. But continuing, seeing those things through to completion, well, that's often quite another matter altogether. How many uncompleted things would we find in each other's homes if we went and visited one another and had a quick look around? How hard would we need to look to find them? Some of you are aware, one of our family in-jokes is my brother's Triumph Spitfire car which when he bought it was roadworthy. He used to use it to drive to work and back every day until one day when the engine blew and it's been in his garage and he is going to fix it. Well, typical of most men, he took the engine to pieces with great enthusiasm. Of course, that's the easy bit. Anyone can take something apart and break it down into pieces. Working out what's gone wrong and putting it all back together again is quite a different story. Well, I made a joke about that car languishing in his garage in my best man speech at his wedding. And his eldest daughter is about to start university in September and that car is still in the garage in just as many pieces. Actually, it's now in its third garage because they've moved house twice since then and somehow the car has managed to make it along with them, much to the disappointment of his wife. The way things are heading, it's going to be his retirement project at this rate if there's anything left of it by then. The message of the gospel is a call to an ongoing, continuing, growing relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ that he establishes for each one who will come to him.
it's not enough to be able to say, there was a day when I believed in him. Maybe some of the people in the crowd that day are actually in that position, and Jesus knows it all too well. In the parable of the sower, Jesus tells of seed which fell on four different types of soil, but in only one of the four soils did the seed continue to grow to maturity. And it says there in Luke 8, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root who believe for a while. But that's not enough. That won't do. And in time of temptation, fall away. It's not enough to be able to say, there was a day when I believed in him. There were many in New Testament days who said they believed in Jesus, but it never lasted. We're told on occasions of those in ones or twos or sometimes in far greater numbers who they'd started out on the road, but they turned back. And so at verse 31 here in John chapter 8, Jesus addresses those in the crowd from verse 30 who at that point are professing to believe in him. Now, whilst you cannot be a Christian without believing in Christ, being a Christian is more than saying that you believe in Christ. Can I say that again for you? You cannot be a Christian without believing in Christ, but being a Christian is more than saying you believe in Christ. And in the following verses, Jesus introduces three other realities that have to be present if you would truly be a Christian, if you truly would be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to say, I believe in him. There needs to be other evidences of things going on, of God in Christ at work within you. So what's the first of those things? Jesus says, if. He uses that word sparingly, but he uses the word. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. It's not enough to say today that you believe in me. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You see, the Christian is someone who gives themselves wholeheartedly to the teaching and the commands of Jesus Christ. And that actually means the whole of the Bible, not just the things that he's quoted as saying in the four Gospels and on a couple of occasions elsewhere in the New Testament. In John's Gospel, the opening chapter introduces the fact that Jesus is the Word of God. It is through the second person of the Godhead 
the eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through him God speaks to his world. And so the one who would follow Christ must give themselves body and soul to the word of Christ. It must have gripped you like that and to that degree and to that extent. That is what believing in him really means and has to mean. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments because that's what those who love me do. That's the proof of their love for me. Now, the word abide that Jesus uses there in verse 31, it has the connotation of remaining in, continuing in. In other words, the word of God becomes the permanent, governing, guiding authority in your life. Now, for that to happen, you have to relinquish control of your life and give it to him and his word. That's what it means to believe in him. You trust him completely and you give yourself to him totally. It means that you must surrender yourself and abandon yourself to the teaching of scripture. That requires obedience, it requires humility, it requires meekness, it requires trust, it requires faith. It means you're no longer your own. Because Jesus is not just your saviour, he must also be your Lord. Because you're going to abide in his word. It's going to define and describe you and motivate and move you. The Invictus Games are going to be in the headlines again quite soon. Those games recently established by Prince Harry uh, for injured service men and women. And they've taken as their motto a poem written by William Ernest Henley. If you look at the t-shirts that they all wear, there's the Invictus Games logo on the front. And they take the letter I from the middle of the word Invictus and the, they take the A and the M from the middle of the word games, which is underneath it. And what you see is, I am. Who is the only I am? Thank you. It's such a harmless-looking, innocuous-looking logo. It is actually the height of blasphemy. Have you noticed? Have you got your eyes open to these things, people? You should. You've got to be discerning people. Now, I've got nothing against the games themselves. And being involved in competitive sport is clearly a great help to these injured service people. But I do take issue with their choice of poem. And I do take issue with their logo. Listen to the poem. Out of the night that covers me, black 
as the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Oh, really? Really? The world has exchanged the truth of God for the lie hasn't it? Wholesale. And most Christians don't even notice the half of it. I am the captain of my soul? That cannot be the case if you would follow Christ and be one who is abiding in his word. For he and he alone, as we sing in that great hymn, he and he alone commands my destiny. And he must be the captain of my soul. Mustn't he? For as long as you remain captain of your own soul, guess what will happen? You will die in your sins. That's this morning's message. Being a true and genuine follower of Christ begins and must continue by abiding in his word, says Jesus. And it follows, therefore, that abiding in his word requires that you, secondly, know the truth. And that's verse 32. And you shall know the truth. Do you know the truth? Well, there's no end of people out there who think they've got the truth to tell you. Where are you really going to find the truth? One place and one place only. The word that has come from the one who is not only the word, but is also the truth. First of all, you must know the truth of the gospel. You must know the faith of the gospel, that series that we concluded not long ago. That's why that series was so important, because you need to know the truth of the gospel. That's why so many of you found it so helpful, because it was all about the truth of the gospel. The reason you found it so helpful wasn't because of me, it was because it was the truth And you recognized it as being the truth. Because that's the work that God does in his people. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. This is the truth. And if you need to go back and look at those things again in in more detail, 
do so, you need to be grounded in the truth. You need to know the truth. Jesus says to those who would say, I believe in him, you must know the truth. You need to know the truth about yourself, why you need salvation, what you need to be saved from, what you need to be saved to, what you need to be saved for. Because of my sins, my wretched sin, I need someone to save me. You need to know about the atoning work of Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. What all those things mean, what is the significance of them? The one who died in the place of sinners to atone for sin. The one who went to the grave, which is where all will go because of sin. But the one who didn't stay there and rose again in the power of an endless life. And it's in his resurrection life and power that we are made new in Christ. And it's because he is the risen one now and forever that we have the assurance and the hope that one day we will be raised and resurrected to endless life with him when he returns. You need to know these things. And if you're not a Christian, this is what it's all about. You need to have known that call from Christ that comes as you hear gospel truth being explained to you so that you can come to saving faith, so that you turn away from your sins in repentance and that you know that renewing and regenerating work of God's Spirit within you. You need to understand on what basis you are justified before God. On what basis have you been reconciled to God? On what basis is God going to let you into his heaven? Marvel at his electing grace and pressing on in union with Christ for your sanctification here on earth and for your glorification when you're, you're taken with him into that place that he's preparing for all the saints. You need to know the truth. You need to know what it is you are believing in, in him. And let me emphasize once again, it's not the truths themselves that are the most important thing. It's not the truths themselves that will save you. It's not the truths themselves that will set you free. Those truths simply define and explain what it is that God has done for sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the Jesus of whom these truths speak. And it's the Jesus to whom all these truths point. He is the one who will save you. He is the one who will set you free. If the Son makes you free, verse 36. The truths simply explain him, describe him, define him. He sets you free.
to know the truth is to know Christ. Do you know him? And to be set free is to be set free in and by and through Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe in him. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And then thirdly, you have to be a slave set free. A slave set free. Verses 33 through to 36. The people answer him, we're Abraham's descendants and we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be, you will be made free? Well, clearly, this belief that they have in verse 30, it's a little bit questionable in at least some of them in the crowd. There's a bit more to be nailed down yet. The people who are listening don't understand what Jesus is talking about when he speaks about being set free. It's strange, given that they're in a, con- a country that's under Roman occupation. You might think at least they thought it was that. Well, to a, de- to a degree, they are just thinking politically and nationalistically. We're, we're descendants of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anyone. We're not very good with their church history, are they? But in, in living memory, I suppose that's what they're thinking. Well, they just don't really get the point. Verse 34, Jesus replies. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about being set free from. The slavery and captivity of sin. We all are, or once were, slaves of sin. Now the thing is, you see, Satan is very cunning and Satan is very deceitful. People who are shackled by sin don't feel like they are. Those of you who can think back to the days before you were a Christian, you will be able to think of many, many years in your life And you did not go to bed at night with a great burden thinking, oh, this captivity of sin never crossed your mind, did it? And that's the cunning and the deceit of Satan. People who are shackled by sin don't feel like they're being held captive by anything very often. In fact, they would tell us that it's religion that's oppressive. It's, a re- it's religion that makes you feel like you're under constraint with all of its do's and don'ts. They think they're the ones who are free. It's we religious people who are the slaves, they will say. But they're not free. And in the truth of God's word, and only in the truth of God's word, the situation is revealed as it really is. Sinners are held as slaves. Often not by the chains of force or coercion, but by the chains of pride. By the chains of a desire for satisfaction and fulfillment. 
and by the belief that they can attain it for themselves. That's what holds them captive. They're held captive by the pursuit of pleasure and the belief that one day they'll find this supreme high which will be the absolute summit of all pleasures and they won't need to look any further and onward they keep looking because they're held captive by it. They don't feel like they're a captive, but they are. They're held captive by the belief that they can do this on their own. It doesn't feel like they're being held by it, but they are. They're held captive by the absurdity of the suggestion that they are slaves. Who are you kidding? Don't be so daft. But that view is holding them captive in their position because they're not prepared to consider anything else. They're held captive by being made blind to God's truth and by finding the truth to be a nonsense. And it holds them captive. They're held captive by the lie that no one has the right to tell them how to live. And that holds them captive in their sin. Because I'll make my choices, thank you very much. But they'll make sinful choices. Because they're not prepared to let anybody else tell them that what they're doing is wrong. And they're held captive by it. They're held captive by the lie that this life is all there is. So go for it. And so they do. And they're held captive by that. They don't want to break out of that. They don't feel like captives, but they are. But that's part of Satan's deception. And Satan rubs his hands in glee as men and women keep their backs turned firmly against God, scornful of the suggestion that they are slaves of sin. And Satan's delighted that they're in that position. But this is the truth of it. And in verse 35, uh, in verse 34, 35, Jesus points out the contrast between a slave and a son as an illustration. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, verse 34, into 35. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. What's, what's the picture that Jesus is painting here? What's the, what's the message he's seeking to convey? Here are two babies. Baby one, baby two. They're born on the same day, under the same roof. One is born to the master of the house. Two is born to a slave in the household. The child born to the slave is in a very precarious position. His parents own nothing. The bed he was born in belongs to the master. He has no certain future. Uh, his hands uh, are tied 
he may decide to walk out so that he thinks he's free, but he has nothing to take with him and probably will just become the servant and slave of something else. He has no freedom, only drudgery. And sin holds sway over people's lives in exactly the same way. It's the situation they were born into. And it's there, over them. Now the, second, the first child who's born to the master is in a very different situation. Now to a casual observer on the day of their birth, there will be little observable differences between these two babies. Well, they're just babies. But the older they grow, it will become more and more obvious that one child is the child and heir of the owner of the house, whilst the other is not just the child of a slave, but is now itself a slave in exactly the same way that its parents were. And the chasm between these two babies is going to grow wider and wider and wider and wider. The child of the master who is an heir and the child of a slave that now itself is a slave. And this difference between the two is growing and growing and growing the older they get. But one day, one day, the child of the master comes to the child of the slave. And in the hand is an important looking document. The child of the master passes that document into the hand of the child of the slave. It's a certificate of adoption signed by the master. And it's being applied in indelible ink. The kind of ink the marriage certificates were signed with yesterday that will never fade. Because it must not The child of the slave looks bemused at first, then confused, then curious, then doubtful. Because if this is not some sick joke, the realities of what this means begin to surge through the mind of the child in slavery. If this document is genuine, if this signature is real, this slave's position and status have been overturned and reconfigured in a moment. If this is true, they are no longer a slave. If this is true, they will never again be looked upon as a child of a slave. If this is true, they are now as much a child of the master as this other child who's just handed them the document. If this is true, 
they will share an inheritance with them. It's true, says the son of the master. This is you, says the son of the master. If the son makes you free, you are free indeed. What does Paul say in Galatians and chapter 4? Now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's master of all. But he's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth his Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. This is so much more than just saying, I believe in him. Do you believe in him? Do you believe in him like this? Set free from the power and dominion of sin and adopted as God's child forever. Abiding in Christ's word because you are a slave set free. Abiding in Christ's word because you are a son. And because you are a son, you abide in Christ's word. Because that's what sons do. Knowing the truth, because now you are a son. And knowing that you are a son, because of the truth. How can you know that you can be a son? Because of the truth. How do you get to grow in the truth? Because you're a son. You say you believe in Jesus. Good. But these are they who are Christ's disciples indeed. Indeed.